This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale, Spencer Editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Rudolph Pitcher. Raised on a farm in Bern, he had an army career that took him to hot spots all over the world. As a student of agronomy at Cornell, he was required to be in the Reserve Officers Training Corps for two years, but liked it so much he stayed for four. He served in Berlin at the height of the Cold War, in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive, in Beirut in the midst of Lebanon's Civil War, and his wife and children were with him in Tehran when the Islamic Republic under Ayatollah Khomeini threw out the pro-Western Shah. He calls his wife his combat buddy and says she was braver than he. So welcome, Rudy. Well, thank you. I would just like to start at the very beginning of your life. Tell us about growing up in the Helderberg Hill Towns and about who your parents were, who your family is. Well, actually, I was born in Massachusetts, <laughs> but uh, my father moved back to the family farm in 1947. The family farm uh, still exists to this day. If you go along the uh, Helderberg Trail, Route 443, and at Miller's intersection, hit Coal Hill Road, and then you drive down the hill toward the Foxy Kill Creek and the bridge there, the stately white farmhouse just across the bridge is the house I grew up in. Wow, that, I know that house. What a beautiful place that is. That so, valley is beautiful. Yeah. There's no question about it. But during that time, I lived in that house from 1947 when my father... Our Elton Pitcher uh, decided to buy the farm back. His father uh, owned the farm back in the 1920s and 30s. Although when you look at any map or history of the area, they call it the Wilcox Farm. Actually, the Pitchers resided in there for much of the time that the place existed. Uh, the uh, uh, in 1947, he bought the farm after he had sold it. My father, our Alton Pitcher, he had sold it when his parents died, uh, basically in the 30s. And he sold it with a proviso that if it ever came up on the market on sale again, he'd get the first right of refusal on purchasing the property back. The property was sold to a couple named the Possons. And then in 47, after the war, my father decided he'd had enough of city life. He was basically in the business world running five and dime stores uh, 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 for a living. And he got tired of it and wanted to return to the farm that he had grown up on. And so when it came up for sale, he repurchased it and came back. And so from 1947 until 1960, when I left for the Army, I lived there in the hills in East Burn. And what kind of a farm was it? Dairy farm, like all the farms in New York State. Of course, back in those days, New York State was the second largest dairy producer in the entire union. There were so many family farms in upstate New York. 
And then over the years, you could see as all the farms closed down pretty much. But that uh, in those days, everybody was kind of living on a farm, I guess, is basically it. Yeah, most of America, most of Americans were farmers. So what was farm life like in that era? As a kid, did you have certain chores to do? Did you have siblings that also were on the farm? It was just the siblings of myself and my sister, Janet Pitcher. She now is retired in Bennington, Vermont. Uh, she lived there all all her life after she left East Burn. Uh, the farm, incident I just might mention, uh, was about 163 acres, and it was really bisected by Coal Hill Road. Uh, but it, when we bought it back in 47, meaning my father, it was largely uh, out of date and had been let go in, a, uh, in, in just about every way you could think of. There was electricity in the house, but there was no water, uh, central water. There was no central heat. Uh, we had an outhouse and then, uh, the, uh, uh, heat was largely by a kitchen stove oil burners. And then we had a big pot belly stove in the living room. And of course, registers going upstairs to try to put some heat in the upstairs bedrooms. So, when the farm was purchased back in 47, it came with a team of horses, which I instantly fell in love with and drove until the day I left for college, uh, Prince and Maud. It uh, was basically work. Uh, being a dairy farm, we had to milk the cows twice a day. My father never convinced me on why we had to sneak up on them early in the morning to get their milk, but that's what we did. And then the winters, we spent our winters largely up in the woods uh, using cross-cut saws to cut fence posts to build fences in the spring. And then the summer came, it was to the hay fields. To, we uh, did all loose hay back then. We didn't have bale or anything like that at that time. That was uh, a much uh, before those days. <laughs> but the, the farm itself was reasonably fertile and it grew, grew good crops being in the lowlands like it was. And uh, we, uh, only thing mechanically really had was an old F-12 tractor that you had steel wheels and you crank to start and a Fairbanks Morse one cylinder engine to pump water up from Fox and Kill Creek that will go uh, water the gardens because we grew a lot of our food. My mother spent hours in the summer basically canning it. And we raised two hogs, the butcher each November. And we had uh, down in the cellar, we had uh, bins for potatoes and apples. And we had racks all along the ceiling for her to put the canned goods on. And then we also had uh, big crocks where we could put the hams and the bacon from the butchered hogs into with brine solution. And out back, we had a smokehouse that we used to cure the meats. And uh, so essentially we're in many ways pretty, uh, uh, living pretty much off of the land. It sounds in some ways idyllic, <laughs> but in other <laughs> ways I'm sure it was very hard work. So- 
if you didn't mind the work, but it was a lot of work without chainsaws, using a cross-cut saw to cut trees with, for example. Yeah, and, and driving the, horses, a team of horses, Prince and Maud. Oh, yeah, my gosh. And then we had a dog named Trixie that a lady up on Coal Hill had given to us, and that had to be the best woodchuck dog in the entire county. Part of my job was to get the dead woodchuck carcasses off the front yard, off the lawn, and bury them out in the garden to help us raise plants. <laughs> well, so tell us about your school days. That was good old Burnox Central back then. Now I see it's Burnox Westerlo. Mm -hmm. uh, but back then it was BKCS. And uh, our classes were quite small. I, In fact, I had a big discussion with back and forth with uh, Marie Lounsbury on this subject, how many were in our class? And we really aren't sure. We thought it was between 36 and 44, but neither of us really remember exactly how many were in our class at BK. And this but was the class of 1956, is that right? 56, yeah. right. And I want to praise that school. The one thing that I learned was after I left there and I went to college, to Cornell, and after that, after I went in the Army, was competitive with people that had gone to school all over the country. I found that the education I received at Burnox was second to none. It was top notch. I was fortunate enough to have people like Alberta Wright teaching me math. And Olga Swick was my English teacher. And she taught me a love of the language that exists with me today. And I, I praise her for that. She did wonders for that. Unfortunately, the Army picked up on that real quick, and I spent half of my career writing documents for the Army as a result. <laughs> Thanks to Olga Swick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I see in an email you also mentioned to me, I'm, I'm familiar with Alberta Wright because for years she was a correspondent for our paper, you know, covering small town life in Bern. But I had never heard of Frank Must. Mustico? Mustico? Mustico. Mustico. Yeah. Who, who, who was he? Tell us about him. Social studies, basically, and history. I see. The town also, because of the signs largely, downtown, you remember in Bern, if you've been there, there's yeah. a, the state signs for history. It had the Dietz massacre and old axe factory signs. And that, along with Mr. Mustico, got me tremendously interested in uh, the history that occurred there in upstate New York and in that area, particularly the uh, Fox and Kill Creek region, now through Schoharie. And I, I've purchased many books over the years, just again, following up on that particular subject, thanks to him and the interest he instilled in me. The first, the teachers at Burn Knox were first class. There was no question about At the time, I didn't realize it. But after I got out, I sure learned how good they were. That's great. And you also mentioned Howard Zimmer. Tell us about him. Again, uh, he actually taught me when I, uh, towards the end of my days at Burn Knox, he was the uh, principal. Uh, but uh, in the early days, he taught, I think, eighth grade history. And that got me, and he was very good at it. He got me very interested in the subject. 
And you, it's interesting to me, you mentioned those state education department markers that started going up in the 1930s, that they made you think about history right in your neighborhood. So I did. Yeah. The so French tell, Wars were just really interested in me. Yeah. So tell us, um, why did you settle on Cornell and what, which college were you in when you went to, to Cornell University? It, uh, I went to the uh, New York State College of Agriculture, and uh, essentially it was my plan that I was going to uh, get a degree in agronomy, the study of soils and field crops. And from there, I was going to join the when I got out of the service, because those were the days of the draft, remember. Mm-hmm. And what I was going to do is get out of the service and then go uh, with the U.S. Department of Agriculture with the Soil Conservation Service. That's what I initially intended to do. But Cornell was one of the land-grant colleges. And as a result, you're required in the days of the draft to take ROTC for two years. I enjoyed the ROTC so much the first two years. I think they paid us a little sum like $60 a month if you'd stay for the final two years and take a commission in the Army. And that's how I wound up in the Army, believe it or not. And I picked the Army because at Cornell, it was the shortest line. The Navy and Air Force lines were longer, so I picked the Army that way. Oh, isn't that interesting? Your whole life was determined because the line was shorter. Well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it that you liked about the ROTC? What was it that, you know, made you sign on for the other two years? The the organization, the the leadership possibilities. I always uh, I drove cows. I thought it might be worth a try to see if you could lead men. Actually, <laughs> it was I was curious, and uh, I didn't realize. And I I see this today that because people are not exposed to the military today, you don't really know much about it. And that's what happened to me. So it was a fit for you. You felt like the military life was something you wanted to pursue. I I don't know how we can, in the short time we have, go through. This list that you sent me is just stunning. But I will pick out some of the things just in order uh, that they happened to you. If you could tell us what it was like in each of these situations, because... Here you were, first of all, the one that you listed was in Berlin during the Cold War, and you were there from 1962 to 1964. And what what was your role there, and what were your perceptions of, of what was happening? I was, uh, it was a difficult time. It was the peak of the Cold War, and it was the days of President Kennedy. And I went over there for a two-year tour of duty, but I wound up with a three and a half year tour of duty because they built the Berlin Wall in 1961, as you remember. Mm-hmm. So I was in the infantry at that time in Bamberg, Germany, and uh, they uh, took all us bachelors and sent us to Berlin to fill all the ranks there when it looked like a war may be coming on. And I wound up with the military police guarding and escorting trains, the U.S. Army passenger and freight trains across East Germany. Uh, down to the uh, western zone uh, of Germany. Uh, it was about a 110-mile trip through East Germany that uh, and we had to clear the trains through the Russians and all that. 
but basically it got held up. It was a time of uh, a lot of problems and we got held up a lot. And so we're in the news a lot. It was just a very uh, uh, trying time. After that, I left the service temporarily. Wait, wait. I want to hear more about these trying times. (laughs) How did you cope with that kind of stress? It must have been nearly constant stress being in that that situation. Well, when you grow up on a quiet farm on the fields, all of a sudden at 21 years old, 22 years old, you have all that excitement. It kind of gets addictive if you want an honest opinion. I loved it. Oh, yeah. I, love, I love the action. I love Berlin, and the Berliners loved us because we were protecting them. And so uh, even though it was a stressful time, meaning there were some 40 Russian divisions around the city of Berlin threatening to attack, by the same token, it was a time of great reward. It was during the time that Kennedy went and made his Ishbenine Berlin. Ah, speech. that's what sticks in everybody's mind. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. fact, my men guarded uh, Air Force One at Tegel Airport when uh, Kennedy was there making his speech. Oh, my gosh. So you heard that speech? I, I did because I was guarding his airplane. I see. But <laughs> you, were, you were in the mix. <laughs> yes. My men. Yeah. Wow. Detachment. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. So I interrupted you. You took a break from the military after that. Why and what did you do? Uh, basically, I really tried to go back to agriculture. Uh, and I uh, went to Cortland, New York uh, with a job uh basically selling and uh, troubleshooting uh, agricultural chemicals, uh, which I'd learned at Cornell at the College of Agriculture. And so I worked for the American Agricultural Chemical Company for a year. And there's where I met my wife, uh, as it it turned out. but then I realized that. Well, wait, the, wait, we have we can't just skip over that. That's a huge life event. <laughs> Tell us who is your wife? My wife came from Cortland, New York, and uh, her name is uh, her name then was Conchetta Harris, a half Italian gal. And her father ran a dry cleaning plant there, which I did not know at the time when I met her. And essentially, they did my laundry. But the problem was apparently me. And what happened (laughs) back then was I'd just come off of Berlin and off the death strip and all that. And I was kind of in pretty good shape, a pretty hardcore little lieutenant. Uh, And essentially, her girls refused to wait on me, the people that were at the counter, because I liked to inspect my uniforms and clothes that I got back. And when I inspected them, it did not go over well, apparently, and they refused to wait on me. So she was the manager and was forced to wait on me. (laughs) Well, then she had some very unkind words to say to me, something about I could take my laundry down the street to their competitor if I felt I didn't do a good job at all. That's why I asked her out. And that basically (laughs) turned into a marriage a year later. Oh, my gosh. So you were a fussy lieutenant making sure that your your uniform was laundered correctly. And the the women working at the 
counter didn't like that. And so she stepped forward. And when she gave you a hard time, you asked her out. Oh, I love that. What a great courtship story. She was angry, but she accepted. (laughs) And you lived happily ever after. Not really. We went, I went to pick her up that evening. She'd forgotten to ask my name, but her mother was really ticked off because she refused to beat me because she, she didn't know my name. Oh, my. So well, what happened? Well, now she says if she'd known that, she would have been nicer. <laughs> it all worked out. It, we had, oh, <laughs> wow. So what made you decide after a year... And you were married then, so you were no longer a bachelor to be placed where the front lines might be. What what made you go back into service? I missed the excitement, very honestly. The adrenaline flow was, you mentioned the assignments. I tended toward those assignments where it made your adrenaline flow. I don't know why. Wow. Well, the next thing on your list is a domestic situation that would make anyone's adrenaline flow and that was the race riots in Rochester in 1964 so you must have been with the National Guard then is that yes I got out of the army within months I was homesick for the army and I was driving through Auburn New York and I saw a the National Guard armory and uh, I went in and just asked questions and somehow wound up joining again and then uh, as a result, within a couple months, I was activated by Governor Rockefeller for the Rochester riots, along with that battalion. It was an armored rifle battalion in Auburn, New York. And so we went into Auburn, or went into Rochester to assist the police in putting down the riots. Wow. So what was that like? That was three days, right? And there were just massive uprising. Uh, so yeah, many African-Americans had migrated to Rochester and didn't have good jobs, didn't have good housing. What what was that like? Well, when, when they saw us come into the town, I uh, I was leading an element into, uh, into uh, Rochester. When they saw us, they put us on a parade field and very wisely, instead of sending the unit in with fixed bayonets, they had us ride where they split us up and a couple of us rode with uh, the police, civilian police to back them up. Mm. And uh, it was uh, it was a little dangerous. They were throwing broken glass through the air and things like that. But uh, I, I don't recall many people getting hurt or anything from it. Yeah. Well, so then you went back to join the army and you ended up in Vietnam. Is that right? Correct. Yes. So tell us about your time in Vietnam. It was, uh, well, as you know, it wasn't a very popular war and, uh, that, that made a big difference. Uh, but I was assigned as a company commander of a combat military police company, which is equipped both as MPs and as infantry and signed, uh, I had two towns, in Vietnam, uh, Nha Trang and Tui Hoa, which is about 30 miles up the coast, QL1, up uh, the street without joy, up the coast. And there we did discipline, law and order, and we escorted uh, uh, PWs back to the camps, the ones that were captured by the Korean divisions and the American divisions in this north end of Vietnam, of South Vietnam. So it was, uh, that happened while I was there, and of course, 
that was a little touch and go. Basically, what happened on that was that they took out all our communications when they launched the TED attacks. And uh, for quite a while, I'd guessed about a week or a little more, my wife didn't know if I'd made it through or not. Connie uh, had some anxious moments. When I got back to the States, she was 98 pounds after worrying about all the things that were happening over there. Gosh. So just comparing that to your first experience in Berlin, what the fact that you mentioned it was an unpopular war, did that... You were very popular in Berlin. <laughs> I mean, did, yeah, just, did that affect the psyche of you and the men that were there? Yes, we knew it was unpopular because there were having so many demonstrations back in the States and a lot of anti-war activities. A lot of the people that were in uniform that came back to the country returning from Vietnam were either spit on or uh, called names. It, it was a pretty hostile time. So we got so we didn't wear uniforms. Uh, but you got to remember, by that time, I was 30 years old and I was a professional soldier and I didn't let anything bother me too much, really. Well, that would be hard, I would think, not to let that bother you. So after that, next on your uh, <laughs> highlights I don't know if you call them a highlights or lowlights list. You were in Tehran, in Iran, um, in 1978. Um, 78, 79, uh, yeah. Yeah, during the overthrow of the Shah. Yeah. So what what was that like? <laughs> Not good. I, I think I have the Army's record. I was the provost marshal there in charge of security of the installations. And I had eight installations overrun in 48 hours by Khomeini's men, Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> so not good. We, we got captured and uh, basically uh, I was a captive for a day and they put us on planes and flew us back to the States. They weren't killing us or our families, which was good. But you're laughing. Is that is that just... In retrospect, you have uh, like a sense of humor about this, or was it just terrifying? Just describe what that was like. Well, it was psychological, a lot of it. For example, what they did uh, during the time we were there, the Americans, of course, were targets. They burned our motor pool. Uh, that had, I don't know how many mo uh, vehicles in it, they burned them all. Uh, the At night, they, they shut the power off, and if you picked up the phone, they had a crying baby sound on it. Uh, you could hear gunfire downtown uh, on the rooftops. And, of course, uh, initially, the Shaw, Reza Pavlovi, was trying to put down the, uh, the people rioting uh, for uh, the Shaw, for the... Uh, uh, Ayatollah. The Ayatollah. But and, and it was our children were there. So that was a little scary. And they were they were burning our vehicles and uh, they were uh, uh, we were worried that. Wait, you would, said our children were there? What, yes, my family was there with me. Yeah. Your Connie, your wife and yes. your children were. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that was worrisome because they were they, we were afraid they were going to attack the school buses, you know. Oh, but, how, how old were your children at that time? Uh, gosh, let's see. I would guess like in perhaps nine, seven, five, something like that. 
Oh my goodness. So in addition to worrying about your men, (laughs) you were worried about your own personal family. So were they ever in, in harm's way or how did that unfold? Yeah. Yeah. I'm fortunate. You see, in addition to a wife, I have a combat buddy. She went through it with me and she is probably braver than I am. It's unbelievable. She never, uh, Never was that worried. She got the wives together to help protect the children. And uh, we uh, did things like ensuring you didn't have uh, maps in your car windows to show that you were an American. Uh, we got special license plates to show, uh, trying to ensure that they didn't think we were Americans. And again, we didn't really have installations. We lived amongst them downtown and uh, their housing too. So you had to be nice to your neighbors to make sure they didn't turn on you or anything. Uh, And after a while, it finally came to the point where the revolution broke. Uh, The uh, Ayatollah returned to Tehran and we were uh, conducted an evacuation of all the Americans. And we conducted an evacuation of all the foreigners that were third party foreigners, got them out as best we could. In fact, my wife, Connie, was the senior officer's wife uh, available at the time. And she uh, took out seven C-141 plane loads of dependents, the final dependents to leave our children and wives to leave Tehran. She she actually commanded as a civilian. Oh, my goodness. So when you were first sent there, it wasn't like the revolution was underway and you were sent there. You were there, stationed there, living there, and this just erupted? It all happened so briefly within a six-month time frame. We went there. You didn't denounce the Shaw. His the secret police who grab you. (laughs) But uh, it was a matter of months that the situation totally changed. And when we got out, we only could take out a suitcase and a blanket apiece. Uh, our furniture and car are still there to this day. Uh, we left everything behind. But uh, we all got out and uh, went to, to Safe Haven in Florida to live with Connie's folks briefly to see what was going to happen, whether we were going to go back or not. As it turned out, we didn't. They never did go back. No. Um, yeah, it was just a complete sea change that happened. So, so for someone who wasn't in the midst of it like you, it seemed to come out of nowhere, you know, this uprising that just changed the country from pro-Western to Muslim under Ayatollah Khomeini and, and, and set a different course for history. But to be right in the middle of that, how, how did your children cope with that later, you know, back home safely in Florida? Or, uh, well, as it, as it turned out, it was not all bad. Uh, to this day, our, our daughter, the youngest, uh, still says she every once in a while she has a bad dream about it because it was rather threatening the dark and the gunfire and everything and the tanks rolling in the streets. But uh, the fortunately, when they got shipped out to Safe Haven in Florida, their teachers were wise enough to bring the little guys up in front of the class and talk about it because it was very topical then. And so they got to talk about what Tehran was like and what had happened over there, what was happening over there. And I think that helped a lot. The boys, the older boys, the, the, the two oldest children, they... Uh, 
they have good memories of it because we were living a good life before that happened. Uh, both of my sons as kids were being taught golf on the golf course by the Shaw's professional golfer. So we we're li living a very good life over there until the revolution occurred. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Well, I'm still just catching my breath. So um, the next thing on the list was you were in Granada in 1983, also at this critical moment. And just tell us about that. I didn't do that, have that much to do there. I was uh, basically at that time, I was the director of civil affairs at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg. And so two of my people were there. Uh, working on uh, civilian problems. I was uh, the director of the Department of Civil Affairs, and we had to do with getting them fed, the people fed, because of when we invaded, a lot of things were taken out, communications, uh, food sources, all of that. So our basic job was to try to get the basic services back and telephone, electricity, water, and get it done as fast as we could so that it didn't cause a plague or some other problem in Grenada itself with the civilians. And again, that was a case of where well, at the time I was down there advising, helping them. Uh, that was a brief assignment. Uh, when I was down there at that particular time, they were actually having pro-American parades when I left. <laughs> that was another sudden one that just from, you know, an outsider just reading about it. You know, in the United States, it, it just seemed to come out of nowhere. And <laughs> I know Ronald Reagan was saying it was concerned about American medical students there that, that led to you know, yes. the invasion. But so tell us just before we go to your next hot spot, you mentioned in passing you were at Fort Bragg at the John F. Kennedy Center. Tell us what 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 that is and what that involved your job there. Back in, gosh, I guess it was the 60s, early 60s, it was recognized that warfare was changing. And we had to, to integrate uh, things like civil affairs, psychological operations uh, with regular combat operations. Otherwise, we're going to lose. And so the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center, Fort Bragg, uh, with special operations people was formed. And then to complete the approach, that approach to, to warfare, they had separate departments with it to handle the other elements. And I was with the one having to do because military police and policing was also close to uh, uh, to, to other civ uh, civilian oriented actions. And that's how I wound up down there. And uh, I was actually there twice. I went back a few years later and wound up uh, with the military security operations in foreign countries. And we had, uh, I had guys in about 22 countries uh, advising their armies uh, on various subjects like artillery uh, and uh, infantry tactics, that type of thing. 
So you're just so diverse in, in what you've done. Um, so in this particular role, you were more like an advisor for this yes. understanding of a new way to conduct warfare. And when you say you had guys in 22 countries, these were uh, people that were stationed around the world and you were kind of overseeing yes. the sorts of and support them. Supporting them. Oh, wow. So (laughs) so our clock is ticked past the time. I can't let you go. I have to hear about (laughs) the last thing on your list you had. You were in Beirut, Lebanon in 1987 and 1988. Again, uh, a a civil war, another really difficult situation. Just tell us about that. Well, basically, uh, I was there. I was... uh, in a uh, special operations type role where we uh, sold government weapons to the Lebanese army so that they could uh, fight off the bad guys. So I was there in essentially a security operations role and and, uh, providing them with the needed weapons that they needed to to keep the government together. It was the Civil War. uh, For example, there were no streetlights left when I got there. They'd all been blown out. It it had lasted 16 years. Yeah, gosh, it seemed endless. But this is just you on the ground. Your family was... They weren't with it. They they were were The only time that they were in this cauldron was back with the Shah being overthrown. Is that right? Iran, yes. Yeah, okay. So your job in Beirut was the special operation to get government weapons to the Lebanese army. And yes. um, what what was it like being in the midst of that? It, it was strange. My whole unit was myself and one sergeant. And uh, we lived amongst them, of course. And uh, it was basically just uh, coordinating with them to see what they needed uh, to see. Then coordinating with the United States to see what we could do as far as providing the weapon system, getting shipped over there, ammunition, uh, that type of thing. Uh, it was strictly uh, security assistance type type uh, of duties, which all over the world, the Army has people uh, like that in positions with the governments so to help them support the defense of their of their government where appropriate so over all these years in all these different cultures and i see from you have a long list of schooling here which we don't have time to go through but one of them was you went to language school to study persian farsi right in 1975 and i just wondered like how what was your understanding of these different cultures that you were thrust into at like one of the worst moments of, of their time? I mean, would, ha, ha, did you come away? What, what's your worldview, I'm asking? <laughs> I was a soldier. I did it, I was told, that's all. Well, I don't and know. And I enjoyed it very much. But several times you've said, you know, you weren't, in in a station, you were living with the people, like you just said that in um, Beirut, and also the, the, with your family in Tehran. I mean, did you develop friendships with people? Or oh yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. If, if you want to survive in those environments, you have to make friends with the people. 
Yeah. For example, in the my office, uh, uh, the Provo Marshal office that I ran over there, uh, I had a full time uh, 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 civilians that worked with me that uh, knew, you know, all the local customs and uh, full pause. You didn't want to do mm-hmm. that type of thing. So it worked out well, and they they prepared you well. The Army, God bless them, they do have great training programs. At the language school at Monterey, where I spent a year, just studying for 46 weeks, studying uh, their their language, how to write it, how to read it, uh, their customs. uh, And that was run by Iranians at the language school at Monterey. You were pretty well prepared when you left there. Uh, they gave you a test at the end to see if you could speak fluently enough for the purpose they had. Generally, after that, if you were fully trained, they'd send you for a year to that country. And you had a year with no real duties except to mesh with the people, learn the customs, get to know people. Uh, and then you were sent for assignment, if you follow me. Yeah, so you had this year of intense language study, and then you had time to immerse yourself in the culture. Correct. And now, as you look back at all this, did were there any like lasting relationships that you developed, or people that affected your perception of some of these different cultures that you were part of? Strange you should mention that. One of uh, the top civilian employee I had from in Iran uh, after the revolution was over and uh, Khomeini took over, the Ayatollah took over, uh, he actually came out of country and visited us at Fort Bragg. Oh. And so uh, uh, we never saw or heard from him after that. I don't know what happened because at, at that time when the revolution occurred, I was working a lot with the uh, their Savak, they called it. It was their secret police in Tehran. And when they came through and Comey's men took over, a lot of those people were either confined or executed. And so uh, he didn't really, wasn't much left of folks that I'm aware of that came, had a chance to return to the United States or come over here and visit. If you follow me. Yeah, no, that's been the concern most recently with Afghanistan. You know, all the people that helped the Americans are now suffering. So, well, I cannot get over the fascinating life you live. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Any anything you'd like to leave us with? Well, I'd like to say that nostalgia still reigns. And I mean that from being up in the hill country. Every once in a while, we still drive back there, even though we're down here in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, we go back, just look at that, because that's a beautiful country up there. Now, I, that doesn't mean I necessarily want to go through another winter up there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is beautiful country, and uh, we do miss it in many ways. Like I say, my wife's from Cortland, so... Uh, she also is an upstate New Yorker, uh, but we we go back occasionally uh, just for to see how things are. But somehow, looking back to those years that I grew up there in the hill country, things could never be the same again. I think back of, for example, Warner's Lake. 
at that time, all the activities that were going on around Warner's Lake, they had, uh, like I say, at least uh, three places just for swimming. And they had camps and uh, it was more active. And the social, I guess that's what we had back then, but the social places were the bars. Every little town had a couple, at least one or two, three bars. And it was a, it was a wonderful time in many ways. And an innocent time, I guess, looking back. I'm, uh, I'm kind of sorry that time is gone. Maybe, maybe television and uh, electronic devices and all those type of things, maybe they aren't that great an improvement overall. I'm, I'm sometimes uh, think I prefer the days of old when we had time to think and time to uh, uh, read. Uh, and, and today I see that not, not that many people read too much anymore. And that bothers my own children don't read like we used to read because we didn't have television. That's what we did in the winter nights in, in uh, East Burn was we read. And I'm not sure that, that getting away from that is a good thing. I agree with you. <laughs> of course, I put out a newspaper that I hope people will read. So. You, you may be a little bit biased, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> but that's wonderful. You would spend your nights, you said it was cold, and you had this kitchen stove and this potbelly stove. So as a family, people would sit around these stoves, I'm assuming. And what like, what did you read? Did you have a favorite book from childhood? Oh, I was a Hardy Boys fan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I read the entire series up there. Oh, wow. Well, you had a more adventurous and adventurous life than the Hardy Boys. So, <laughs> thank you for sharing. Melissa, it was nice meeting you. Thank you for talking to me. I enjoyed it. 